Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In today's episode, we speak with Brian Lacey, a longtime leader in the field of sustained giving in the U.S. and Canada. Brian takes us on a journey from his college days at the University of Toronto through to leading the program at the University of Connecticut, and finally running his own firm today out of Texas. Along the way, he shares his reflections on the faith, family, and philanthropy that has sustained him in the darkest hours and given him the strength to help others navigate their own greatest challenges at work and at home. Let me go back in time a little bit. In my senior, uh, in my junior year, between my junior and senior year that summer, I got a job at a lab at the university. As many biology students, the coveted jobs where you get a job at a lab, right? You know, in case you want to go into science, right? You want to mm-hmm. have a nice resume that says you worked in a lab. And I worked in a lab. And as much as I loved the people, I hated it. I hated it. So I went into my senior year of college, you know, you're three years in with your biology degree and anthropology degree, knowing that you do not want to work in a lab when you graduate. (laughs) And so hence the reason why probably when I participated in the phonathon, I probably participated more eagerly. I, I think I knew I wanted to be in fundraising more than I wanted to be a scientist. It's not something that a lot of people know. I, every everybody I talk to in the field, they'll say that it was just something they sort of fell into. But you made a choice, a conscious choice. Yeah, I, so. I probably made a choice, but probably the choice was made somewhere around the end of my third year of college. But what was it that attracted you to it? What 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 was so well, appealing about making those yeah. phone calls to strangers? That's what most people yeah. fear, and you didn't. <laughs> well, I, I think what I liked about it was I I, I love well, in fact, and and I love that it was metrics based. And that's why, uh, as you know, in my business today, I do, I do, I lean more towards annual giving than I do towards uh, major gifts, right? I lean towards science and less the art of it, right? Um, um, I loved the fact that, and even, and I loved it when I was at the University of Toronto, when I, when I got the full-time position, I loved the fact that I knew exactly what they had done last September and what I had to do to beat it. And I loved Okay, this is what this is how they ended the year last. This is this is their December 31 number, donors, gifts, etc. This is where I want to be, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, that fed itself. Uh, I was probably very fortunate to come in at a time at the University of Toronto of rapid growth, and we did incredible things. We had a very interesting development office at the University of Toronto. There's a lot of super talented people. They, you know, and and of course, because I was working there. Uh, um, as you know, in our profession, um, colleges and universities tend to have the better tools. They tend to be better funded. Um, they tend, and so, and then of course, I'm at the University of Toronto, which is running the largest development campaigns in Canada. So that was exciting, right? To be a part of all that and to see the people involved in all that and to, you know, to sort of, you know, you're, 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 with, you're getting a whiff of it every day. My, my desk, my cube, my desk was uh, less than, less than 25 feet from the front door of the development office on the ground floor. So I saw uh, one after another of the Canadian establishment walking in with the university president to meet with the vice president of development. Um, you know, I guess uh, this is when John Delandria was running the office, maybe, or even before John Delandria, Gordon Cressy, mm. um, uh, you know, but Rivy Frankel, she's been around yes. Rivy Frankel's. Right. Yeah, she still runs, you know, uh, um, she still runs Ryerson, uh, right. their development program. But Rivy Frankel was, yeah, Rivy Frankel was on the third floor of our building because when I, back when I was doing my job, she was director of alumni affairs. But mm-hmm. Rivy Frank, you know, Rivy Frankel, John Delandria, Gordon Cressy, um, but yeah, but also the people coming through the door were, you know, you know, one million dollar donor after another million dollar. And of course, we thought it was a big deal then because uh, they announced when I was there, we did the three hundred million dollar breakthrough campaign. And that was at the time the largest campaign of its kind in Canada. The University of Toronto right now is just blew through a two billion dollar campaign. And I think the next one they've announced is a four billion dollar campaign. So they're not. Right. They're not quite USC slash Stanford slash Harvard yet, but 
They're in they're in the top ten in the, in North America. Right. Right. Sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but a lot of that was yeah. built on the the work that you were doing, uh, the work that all your colleagues were doing. And it was relatively new there, as you said, it was one of so many universities reaching out to uh, alumni, maybe in some cases for the first time, or at least in that way for the first time. Isn't that right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Now, you know, there's other other folks that the folks that have been around as long as you and I have might might know some of these names. But, you know, IDC was, you know, we were we were, Mm -hmm. I think you know, one of IDC's four or five first clients, you know, and they were doing capital campaign calls, you know, in an office building, you know, five or six blocks away while I was doing annual fund calling in the basement of that building. And, you know, we, we went to see what they were doing over at IDC. You know, we went to, uh, you know, we went to the basement of the Royal Ontario Museum was is basically surrounded by the University of Toronto. If you've ever been to the Royal Ontario Museum, it's, right. it's right near Queen's Park, but so is the University of Toronto and the University of Toronto owns a ton of land and it's sort of right there. We went to the basement to see how they were doing all their membership calling, you know, like we, uh, I had a boss who was about, um, okay, which programs do we like? Let's now go and, and see what they're doing. You know? so, so they weren't, they weren't threatened by that. There wasn't this feeling that, no, that's a state secret. People were willing to bring one another in and share what they knew. And yeah, I, I think that's, and that continues to think, I think be one of the things that, that uh, is nice about our, our field, right? I mm-hmm. think you can go to AFP conferences and people will share how their nonprofit raises money. You mm-hmm. can go to case conferences and colleges and universities will share, this is how we do it. And, you know, and the joke, uh, the joke that most of us know, if we've been around long enough, that case stands for copy and steal everything. Um, we were doing that even before I'd ever heard that term. We were going everywhere and copy and stealing everything we could get our hands on. Uh, but again, uh, you know, that that has sunk in with me. I have tried to be a good mentor to others because over my career, because it, it mattered to me. And, and, and I started in, I started running the phone center. Of course, the person who runs the phone center basically works from, uh, they basically work from noon, noon till 10 at night, right? Because the calling happens at night. Right. Um, and so, you know, most people in that position do it for about a year and a half, which is about what I did. Um, and then they, and then I got the position running the direct mail. So, you know, lots of phone experience. Now I'll go and I'll graduate to the direct mail position. And I worked there for another year and a half. While I wasn't the director of annual giving, I basically had a lot of the responsibilities of the director of annual giving in my final year because the position was vacant. Hmm. It was vacant for like nine months. So I was the senior person in annual giving there. And, and again, I got all kinds of exposure uh, and opportunity because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what, what happened? How did you decide to leave this place where so, oh, so much yeah, of your work well, you was? Know, I, I think you decide. Uh, so a director finally was hired. So it wasn't me. And I, and I don't even, and I, and I kind of understood that I wasn't being considered. So I think at that point, um, I think like, like a lot of people, you just start looking for director jobs. You've been an assistant director for two, two and a half years. You start looking. And I took a director of annual giving position at a smaller university in Canada called Trent University. It's about an hour and 40 minutes uh, north and east of the city of Toronto in a place called Peterborough. So, And you were there for how long at Trent? I was there for three years. Yeah. For three years. Yep. And uh, was that a... a- a big piece of, of your story or was that kind of, yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah, that, that was a now. great, great place. Uh, loved it. Um, again, lucky, fortunate, uh, Susan Mackle, a uh, friend of mine to this day was my boss. She was the VP. Um, it was, it was neat because, you know, what, what helped, what, what, one of the things that, uh, Trent helped me do is much smaller place. So of course you did more in a small place. Mm-hmm. Um, other things that happened in a small place, um, you know, there's a little bit of the big fish, small pond uh, thing starts to happen to you, right? So mm-hmm. we were by far, at the University of Toronto, we were by far the biggest fundraisers, but there were also huge hospitals and, you know, huge other fundraising organizations, right? right? When we got to Peterborough, yeah, we were, the, again, the university was the biggest fundraiser in town. Um, they fiercely, the United Way fiercely recruited. So I was immediately asked to serve on the United Way board, you know, and I did. Um, and well, 
Susan basically volunteered me or whatever, you know. Uh, so I, I worked on the United Way board. Um, mm -hmm. I met probably the 10 or 20 wealthiest people in Peterborough and they were in there and they were indeed wealthy people. And you also got, I got the experience of being like a college town. Right. Right. And right. so that was, and that, that impacted my ability to go to the States and say, yeah, I can live in that college town. I can live in that college town. I can enjoy this. Um, and I did, I became a big brother. I, you know, again, uh, the director of alumni affairs, still a good friend, Tony story. Um, he was on the board of Big Brother Big Sister, so he encouraged me to be a big, and and I did that, and that was you know that was something where I thought you know that's real service. I enjoyed I enjoyed it, you know, um, and it, it, it um, and, and I enjoyed the work on the United Way board, enjoyed that service, you know. So the people were setting me up. I I always say that both Susan and Tony, um, they set me up to be successful, helped me. But they also set me up. Tony set me up um, uh, like he told the people at the Big Brother, Big Sister. He's like, you know, you're going to give Brian somebody. You're going to give him a nice kid. <laughs> you <know? laughs> you're going to give him a nice kid with and, and I'm, you know, with a mom who has a full time job, you know, da, 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 da. and, and he just wanted me to have a good first experience so that I would speak favorably yeah. about it, because a lot of people have the, you know, you know, the, the last thing you want when you're a big is if your first experience is that you pick up a kid and you go out and you come home and you're supposed to drop the kid off and nobody's home, you know, and right. all of the things. And those are things that go wrong in, you know, in social service, you know, stuff. Um, so, uh, again, fortunate to, um, you know, fortunate and blessed as a kid growing up in an upper middle class family, fortunate to have, you know, sort of one mentor after another that that was encouraging and positive and, and smart and bright and, and people with senses of humor, you know, uh, uh, you know, Susan Mackle would, uh, she came to Peterborough from the Toronto market and, uh, she came as, uh, uh, coming out of that, she came out of the healthcare market. She was a VP at a major hospital camp uh, in, in Houston, in the development area. And Susan would, as a result, got into the habit of, going to a tremendous number of funerals because if you are a vp of development in healthcare you go to a lot of funerals mm. because sometimes the people making the biggest gifts and the estate gifts and things are coming from people who, who pass away and uh anyway susan just uh well maybe we'll go there another time too there are actually funny stories about development and funerals <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to see if she'll come on board and, and tell us some of those. There you those go. Are... Yeah, I'll let, I'll let yeah, I'll save that for her. She would be great. Yeah. <laughs> but but you you talked about service here and uh, being from this this kind of family, an upper middle class family. But you didn't mention that service was actually a part of growing up. So, I mean, some people discover it because they have a good experience and then they enjoy it and they keep doing it. Was this already in you? Did you already know that these are the kinds of things you like to to do with your time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, while still in high school, while still in college, um, um, uh, I'm a, I go to a, I, uh, I go to a, an evangelical church now and, I, and sort of have since I came to Texas, but I was born and raised Catholic. And so um, we were involved in, in the church's solicitation campaigns early on. We were encouraged to, uh, to give. My parents encouraged us to give to the church. My parents encouraged us to help the church in fundraising. The church uh, in Canada runs a thing called Share Life. It's kind of a competitor to the United Way, to be perfectly honest, and the Catholic Church. Some say the Catholic Church created it about 40 or 50, well, maybe 50 years ago now, when, when United Way began you know, supporting abortion. The Catholic Church came up with this, and, and it was an idea to give Catholics an option that you could support lots of things in the community, just not abortion. Anyway, um, the, and the parishes would solicit, yes, obviously from the pulpit, they, they can do that. Mm -hmm. But then what they would do is once a year for about a month, they would go and visit all the lapsed Catholics who didn't come to church. Mm. And so we did that. <laughs> we did that as my parents would encourage us. And I think my brothers and sisters all at least once or twice participated in that. 
where you would go neighborhood to neighborhood with, you'd have a card and it would say that this is the home of right. the Mraz family, Sue and Gerald. And you would go knock on the door and remind them that, Hey, it's share the annual share life campaign. The, uh, the, the Bishop has asked us to come and visit you. <laughs> and, you know, uh, so we would do that. Um, I did go, I grew up going to, uh, uh, Catholic school growing up and I was a part of the mission society. So I, I did mission trips. We raised money. We collected, you know, food baskets and distributed food baskets at Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter. So yeah, I, I did those things as a kid growing up. For sure. Yeah. So that was all a part of who you were by the time you were, by the time I got to college. So, so in fact, that might've, yeah, maybe we, we did this, this little talk in the wrong order. That's probably why I found getting on the phone and asking for, you know, alumni to give not that difficult alumni and parents to give because right. I've done it in high yeah. school. Sure. You were, you were comfortable having that conversation. Um, yeah. So then you went on again and, and you were there and then you talked about how uh, I can't remember how you said it now, but it kind of prepared you to be able to move farther afield and you, everything now is still, um, Toronto, Ontario, Peterborough. Uh, but, but then you go to the United States, you know, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Uh, okay. Well, that, that's, that's easy love. So, <laughs> you know, uh, on a trip to Boston, I met my, uh, my first wife. So I met my first wife when I was visiting Boston. I was, I went down with a couple of, uh, college friends, we went down for a weekend and I met her. Uh, she hung out with us for a couple of meals with my friends. And then I decided I really liked her, so I was gonna visit her. So I began to take these 12 hour drives from Peterborough, Ontario to Boston. Oh, wow. <laughs> once a month, mm -hmm. uh, I'd drive there on a Friday, arrive at like two in the morning, spend the weekend with her and then drive back on Sunday night or maybe on Monday if it was a holiday weekend. So I started seeing her maybe once a month, maybe every other month. She was going to uh, Boston University Law School. So she was finishing a law degree. So she wasn't, so so we were, I was probably five years older than her at that point. So, and and yeah, so that was, was, that was why you started uh, coming down south, yeah. but it doesn't really explain the, uh, the, the, the next big leap, which was to oh, Kent yeah, State. Yeah. Sure, sure it does. Because <laughs> when you start dating an American, so what happens is you start dating an American and you say, okay, this is a person I want to marry. Then you say to yourself, well, she can't really come to Canada because she's gone to an American law school and studied American law. So she can't move to Canada. But I'm a fundraiser and there's way more fundraising positions in Canada. In fact, there's not 60 universities there's 3,400. So I just started applying to American universities. Uh, and I got a job at not Kent State. I got a job at St. Francis College in Loretto, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I got yeah. the order out of sequence. But uh, yeah. that, that might have even seemed more obscure to somebody from Toronto because that's not, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's not a big know, place. Didn't, didn't know it existed until I applied to them. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. and you took over the shop there. I mean, is well, that right? Well, no, I took over the annual fund. I ran the, yes. you know, again, a small shop, a three people shop, a VP of development, director of annual giving, corporate and foundation relations person. It was a three person shop. Sure. Uh, and but how, were, what was the biggest difference between what you were doing before and then that, that environment in terms of raising money, that, but the culture of the was, office? Uh, compare, yeah. Comparing that to Trent University, that was, almost directly a lateral move okay. so that was it was a completely lateral move now ironically and i and i was taking it so that i could get a job in the states because immediately um my first wife moved to join me and we got married like six months later so we got married we, we were living in pennsylvania when i got married you know it turned out what, what i was being paid in canada they thought was quite a lot, you know, and they, so they ended up matching it. And I didn't think, I thought, well, this is a lateral move. But then I realized I had moved to a part of the United States, which was very inexpensive to live in. So in fact, the fact that I got the same money and the same title and was doing the same kind of work, um, number one, the money went a lot further. 
you know um this was a town in the, in the allegheny mountains where well in fact i did i bought one house for forty five thousand dollars and then i bought another house for a i bought an incredible house and it only cost one hundred and ten thousand. you know it was it was literally amazing um so it was just um and the very fact that i at that point i think i was uh i was uh 30 years old and i owned two houses <laughs> in this town in pennsylvania i'd lived in less than six months you know um you know it just it things were possible um but but the other thing is even though it was a lateral movement so on and so forth i was raising more money because it was a small private catholic college and i was raising uh, the annual fund i was raising a million dollars a year and the entire budget of the university was i want to say it was 15 million a year so i was raising like eight percent of the college budget yeah whereas it, whereas in the university of toronto i was raising or rather at trent university i was raising four hundred thousand. And in a place that had a budget of, you know, 150 million or something, you know, I was raising three, I was raising 0.03% of the budget. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, anyway, I began to learn then about, um, I began to learn, all, you learn all kinds of things. You learn, oh, you, you know, you, when you start out in development, you think, ah, oh, we're the money, bread, we're the, we're the breadwinners, we're this, we're that, we're this, we're that. And you begin to get a bit of a big head. And then you get to a private college and you realize, huh. 85% of the money supporting this college or 80% of the money supporting this college is coming from admissions. Admissions are the people that matter. You begin to realize like, oh, you get, you get sort of shocked out of that. Um, this sort of sense that, you know, you're big dogs on campus. It must've been humbling. Yeah, a little bit. You're like, but, 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 but we did, we, we did raise a big chunk and we raised right. a big chunk of money. But of course you also knew, you also knew that you had, a, it was, you had a pretty severe responsibility because if you didn't hit goal, somebody on campus was being laid off. I mean, it was, you know, the school, this was not a school that had huge endowments. You know, this was a school that was doing okay. They had done a bunch of smart stuff, but, it, but at the time I was joining them, I mean, I, I can name in New York state alone, I can name a dozen colleges that sound like Catholic colleges. Mm -hmm. The Catholic diocese sold to the state, right. you know, like, you know, Nazareth, and, I, and I've done work for some of them, Nazareth College. Um, mm -hmm. uh, these are all um, uh, Car Carlo College. There's a whole bunch of colleges that the Catholic Church sold in the 70s and 80s because they just couldn't make a go of it. Um, but this was a college that made a go of it. And what they had done uh, early on was they went heavily into the, into the health sciences. So by the time I left there, I, I worked there for three years. When I left there, 45% of their students were health science majors, either nursing, physical therapy, occupational therapy, physician's assistants. They did have the oldest physician's assistants program in the country. When I was there, it was 150 years old. So that's, it's gotta be 175 years old now or 180 years old. Um, but yeah, and so what they saw was, because those kids all graduate into high paying jobs. Therefore they'll pay a private college tuition. Hmm. So anyway, but then and they, they must, smart. and they, they weren't afraid to go out and, and ask the alumni for support. I mean, some of the other schools, not specifically those you mentioned, but many schools during that period were, they were relying on other sources of revenue. And, and then suddenly, you know, they, they needed to go and, yeah. and do this. And some didn't. And some, yeah, and we were, that, and then, and that was where, uh, and although I had done a, I had done a little bit of it at, at Trent University, just a teeny bit. Uh, I'd never really got, I'd gotten in my car and driven around Peterborough and talked to some leadership gift donors in Peterborough, but I never got in my car and went anywhere other than Peterborough or Toronto on behalf of Trent. Yes, for mm -hmm. St. Francis College, I got in my car and I drove to Delaware and I, had an annual trip and I would go to New York every year and see eight or 10 donors in New York. And I would go to Philadelphia and see four or five donors in Philadelphia. This place had a footprint. St. Francis college had a, had a, had an alumni footprint that was largely Pennsylvania, New York, and Delaware. Yeah. And sort so of a I leadership would, annual fund component. Is that roughly what yeah, it was? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and had the experience of, you know, staying in some alums homes and staying in, you know, anyway, and doing yeah. all that. And that was, and that was great. It was, yeah. uh, uh, it was a good experience for me and I, I grew in the position and yeah. 
and then then you then you made it to Kent State. So I don't know. Is that again? You're just kind of looking for other things that are exciting yeah. to do you and know, learn from. Or? You know, the annual fund. The you know the annual fund thing in my in my pattern. I mean, my pattern. I think in almost everywhere I was, it was three years, three years, three years, three okay. years. So you get in there. Uh, in year one, you're you're fixing things or changing things because you see mm -hmm. things that can be done differently. So you make those changes. You get a nice bump. And the year after that, you're fixing and refining. Hopefully, you still get another nice increase in your numbers. And then the third year, you know, now I'm just managing a machine that I put into place. You know, right. so I think from from my head it got less interesting. Almost all of those jobs became less of a challenge and less interesting after the third year. It does so kind of, I, yeah. it does kind of uh, show how though I, I can imagine as a consultant today, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, mm -hmm. that you, that must have almost been a model. You know, the first year you go in there and you fix it. The second year you help them to grow. And the third year you make sure the machine still works. Um, it, it, were there some lessons that you took from those experiences were, that you're bringing to everybody you talk to now? And are there some? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. And, 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 and then did it at increasingly larger places, Kent State and the University of Connecticut. Yeah, but exactly. Um, number one, uh, one of the things that I always found interesting is everywhere I ever started work uh, and almost everywhere I've ever been a consultant, I've been told, well, things are different here. You know, and, 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 and they are right. But sure. you know what? Good development works everywhere. You know, doing the right things works everywhere. And in my experience, generally doing the right annual giving stuff works everywhere, you know? So, um, you know, the key is to, uh, in, in, in many of those places for me, and it continues to be, is to search out people's willingness to, to change. Um, you know, you have to help them. You have to, sometimes you have to help them get there because they, they don't get there on their own naturally. Um, they don't like to think that maybe they haven't been doing things in the best way, in which case as well, the incremental changes and letting them see the progress that's made, um, sometimes is, sometimes is, is helpful. Um, the good news is there are there are some pretty key things that that I've done every single place I've been and with every single consulting partner, and I've never seen them not work. And I didn't create them; they 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 were around before. Sean Elder taught them to me. You know, Susan Mackle knew them, and she reminded me of them. And you know, so we you know we did these things that you know just carefully looking at opportunity. You know, it, it you're researching, you're paying attention, you're um, you're looking at that the experience you're giving the donor, you're trying to make that a good experience. You're trying to tell stories. You're trying to share what they can do to impact the lives of others. You know, you and I have had these conversations where, you know, are you saving lives or are you changing lives? Um, all of that is true. And it just, you know, so bringing that, um, but again, you know, uh, looking for that willingness to change. Sometimes it's not an issue. Sometimes they literally say, what should we do? And then, and then I would just go to sort of my tried, tested and trues. And, and they, they generally, they generally work. Yeah. Um, so. And, and so there, and then from there you went to Kent state and then finally to, to UConn before starting your own, enterprise. And uh, I know that those are a matter of scale. Even Kent State is obviously a substantial institution. UConn is kind of a, a, a monster. I mean, they're, they, they, in a lot of respects, they've done a lot of a, a large scale work. What were the things that led you to those places? What did you take away from that experience? Why did you decide yeah. you'd had enough and then move on on, on your own? Yeah. Um, I, I think I, uh, Kent State was just an opportunity. I got, uh, I think that's the only time. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the only time uh, I, I can, well, it's not the only time. That's the only time I can say I responded favorably to being headhunted. So I was approached to go there. So that was not me sort of looking. I was approached to go there um, and and I looked at the opportunity and thought, yeah, that's, that's a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, and it was bigger institution, more pay, 
and so on and so forth. Um, strangely enough, um, um, when I was living and working at St. Francis College, it was almost exactly a six hour drive to Mississauga. So I could get home in six hours in my car, you know. Uh, ironically, Kent State is almost exactly six hours from Mississauga as well. So it literally was like I moved from six o'clock straight <laughs> south to roughly, what would that be, eight o'clock on the dial, you know. Um, and so it, it was an opportunity to sort of, you know, show the show the skills and the talents and, and bring bring abilities to bear. There was a bit of a um, my the opportunity to move came and we moved sure. and then and then uh from there again good stuff happening great stuff happening met met tremendous people um enjoyed my time at kent state um uh by the time i got to kent state i'd been in or uconn pardon me i'd been in development uh 14 13 14 years maybe 15 mm -hmm. years and so all of the annual giving. So then I started to say, okay, well, I've got, and I also had a bigger team and I was doing things and we were having successes and things, but I thought to myself, you know what? Um, I'll start consulting. So I started doing the consulting on the side while still employed full-time at the university of Connecticut. Um, and then I really enjoyed that. And it was like, Hey, you know what? I could improve. It's saying my, uh, you know, Okay, there. Okay, um, it was saying that the, my my Wi-Fi was unstable, but I think it, okay. it is a little bit right now. Hopefully, it'll come back online. You were okay. a little unstable. Oh, it's better now. So so anyway, so then it so that was the taste, right? So then I created the consulting firm. I began doing that on the side, and I began to think, huh, I can either work for five or six institutions at a time, or I can work for one, and so that became the the, the driving force behind you know, going into business for myself and, and all of that. And, and that all, and it, it all became a, Hey, we're going to move to Texas. We'll just start all of this. Right. Right. And, and you didn't have any kids at that point, did you, or did you? Did no, you I did. I did. We had uh, both. Yeah. Both of my kids were born when I was living in, uh, in Ohio. So they were oh. both born when we were at Kent state, we went to Connecticut um, now that's not, that's not a happy part of the story. That's an unhappy part of the story. And, um, in the sense that, um, my wife said, Hey, we should move to Texas. You know, she was from Texas, like Houston, and she, we should move to Houston. And I said, okay, let's, let's, you know what? We've always talked about the possibility of doing that. Let's do it. You know? And we moved to Texas. Well, only wait, 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 but why, why Texas? You had always talked about moving to Texas. Why? She, my, that's my wife's hometown. Houston. Is oh, her I see. I see. Okay. So she was going to school in Boston, but yeah. Okay. So she, so this is the unhappy, well, first unhappy bit of my story. So uh, she said, let's, 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 let's go to Houston, you know, because at this point we have small children, right? Both of the children are under three years of age and it's, you know, Hey, you know, if you want to take a vacation as a couple, it's nice to have family around, maybe to watch mm -hmm. the kids for a weekend, you know? Right. And so uh, we did. Uh, what I didn't know was, uh, and I think I indicated my wife was an attorney. <laughs> uh, we got there and six months plus one day she filed for divorce. And that means that when she filed six months plus one day, that meant that because we'd been in Texas for six months, that was the state that the kids were going to be required to stay in. So I think she knew six months earlier she wanted to file for divorce. So she wanted to get the family into Houston before she did that. So. Um, that's hard. Part of our that's, story. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's oh, yeah. It was it was. Well, I'll tell you what, what I'll, 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 I'm 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 very comfortable about being honest about things. I cried a lot. I cried a lot. That's the second most difficult thing to ever happen in my life. And I'll tell you what made it harder, Jay, was I was starting a business. I worked from home. I had no colleagues. So I had a small apartment, me at a desk um, working. I had no colleagues that I would see every day. Um, my network in the city of Houston at the time of the divorce was her family and her friends, and they immediately put up 
pretty significant barriers to me having any contact with any of them because it just was too difficult for them. Right. You know, even members of her family and friends who liked me would say, Hey, we like you, but you know, she's our family or we like you, but she's asked us not to talk to you or, you know, things like that. So, so that was, that was really, really hard, really, really hard. And, and, you know, um, to the point where there were times when different members of my family, and of course my family's in Toronto, Canada, about whatever, 1400 miles away, you know, so that was tough. It wasn't like anybody could drive down and visit me for the weekend. We were no longer driving distance. That's a 32 hour drive. I've done it. Um, so it was hard. And, you know, uh, but part of what, you know, part of what saved me in that situation, I think was I was, we were members of a tennis club. So I kept playing at the tennis club and I had experiences where sort of total strangers kind of fell in my lap again, for me, that's a God thing, right? Opportunities came up and I literally would go to the tennis club every single day. So at five o'clock every day, I would make myself a peanut butter sandwich or a ham sandwich and I would eat it quickly. And I would go to the tennis club, even when I didn't have anything scheduled and I would sit and wait because somebody would say, Hey, I need somebody to hit with, or, or, Hey, we, we got, we got three today. You want to come play with us? Or, you know, I, I, so I did that. I was at the tennis club and I probably got into better shape than I've ever been in my life. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, did you also find, even though you were now in this place, which was not home, it was your new home, but um, yeah. you were isolated there. It sounds like aside from the tennis club, what about within the community of development? You know, I know that since you were beginning your business, you're probably starting to go to shows, doing different things, speaking. So yeah. how did that play into your ability to kind of remake things? Yeah, um, well, it did. Yeah, all of that, all of that helped. So development became my world. So I have, you know, I have relationships. Um, I was working at the time, in addition to doing my own stuff, I was working, uh, doing a lot of work for uh uh, HEP development, uh, which is based in Virginia. And I was representing them at all their trade shows. So I wasn't an employee of HEP, but I was a 1099 and, but I was doing 100% of their trade shows. So I was traveling around the country where it didn't help was the, uh, and I, and I would say this to people I had in my, in the, in the first year or two after my divorce, I had way more Chicago clients than I had clients in Houston. I think I only had like one client in Houston. It wasn't like, it wasn't like I knew a ton of people in Houston, right? right. I had more clients in Chicago than I had in, in Houston. I had more clients in California than I had in the state of Texas. It just, you know, so personally, but, I, but I was doing that. I was traveling and I had relationships and I had friendships and I had relationships with people in Canada and, uh, and I, and I had, you know, partnerships and things like that. Uh, I, I've got friends in Ohio. There's a direct mail firm in Ohio where I've known, uh, I've known, well, I know all the salespeople, but I've known the owner for 30 years. I've known his top two salespeople for more than 25 years. Um, so I would go to trade shows and hang out with these people that I knew. So that was my social. But of course, what it meant was when I was in Houston and then when I was in Houston, um, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I was a good father. So I took every minute I could with my kids, every minute that I was legally permitted, um, spend a little bit of money in the first three years since I was divorced fighting with my ex-wife for more and more and more custody time. So yeah. it wasn't, wasn't great to be fighting, you know, but um, I, I ended up with a divorce agreement that had me spending more time with those kids than 98% of fathers in Texas get to spend with their kids when they get divorced. Right. And so I did that. So when I was in Texas, I was with my kids. When I was on the road working, I was just working. And I will say this, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, again, there's a, you know, the whole crucible of, of flames, right. Or the, you know, getting, you know, worked over in the crucible or going through the, the situations, the fires and the, and the tragedies and things like that. You do, you can come out. I'm not going to say you do for sure. You can come out the other side stronger. For me, I probably, because I was alone at that point, um, and in a, you know, I probably worked 70, 80 hours a week and, and I found the work comforting because I wasn't thinking about my 
personal circumstances, so to speak. Um, so that, you know, it let me focus. The work was a distraction, but also when you spend a lot of time at it, you can make some money, build some relationships, build, build a business. And partnerships are a huge part of your work. I mean, I know that personally, it's been a discussion we've had offline, but it, it wasn't just with HEP Development, although you did a lot of work with them, but lots of other companies um, as yeah. well as individual clients. Uh, so it sounds like that's a part of your whole story is building these relationships. Sometimes people were mentoring you, sometimes you were mentoring others, but finding these partner, these friendships where you could help one another whether it was, you know, yeah. right there in your yeah. first job or at the tennis club was a big feature of this. So what part has that played in the development of the firm and, and the work that you do now? Well, yeah, I think it's, I think it's had a big part, um, but it's, and it's all different kinds of ways, you know? So, um, you know, I'm a, I, I sell, uh, in addition to doing the wealth screening, or pardon me, in addition to doing consulting, as you know, um, I sell wealth screening services. Well, that's helpful. Well, many, most, probably most, I shouldn't say most, no, many of the consulting firms out there that are my size, larger and smaller, um, will offer a screening service, right? Because it's a process, most nonprofits that think about they're gonna do, they wanna do a campaign or what have you, need to know where their opportunities within their database lie. So, um, they need to do a screening. Many of them need to do a screening. So having a relationship with a screening company, um, and again, these relationships start, you have a relationship with somebody when they're with another one firm, and the next thing you know, they're in another firm. The next thing you know, they're starting a company. So yeah, my relationship with, with people like yourself and people like Bill Tedesco began um, before donor search existed. So I've been a reseller and a partner of donor searches since its earliest days. Um, as I said, I've got a direct mail. I've got friends. Um, I was uh, MCR is a direct mail company that that is probably it may not be the largest in higher education, um, but it's certainly one of the largest. It may have the most higher ed clients um, in you know in in America. Um, I was their second higher ed client. Akron was their first. I was working at Kent State. I was their second. I have a 30-year relationship with them. So um, when I need to sort of leverage sort of friendships and things like that, and, you know, I'm going to and ask a favor, I can get a favor for my client. I can get my, my client assisted this way or that way. I, you know, knowing people means that, as you know, uh, in, 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 in these, in, uh, in consulting firms now, a lot of us work multiple, you know, we're working for multiple jobs. We're working maybe full-time here and we do part-time work here, or maybe we do, we have a variety of partners. Simply knowing a lot of people is, I think I can save my clients time. I think I can save them money um, by saying to them, hey, you know what? I know you, I know you're, you're doing this with these folks, but in my experience, they're not the best. Or in my experience, they're the same as everybody else and they just cost more. So let's, you know, and you're telling me you don't have money for a wealth screening and I'm telling you that you've got the money, you're just currently spending it in a way that you, you could spend it differently. So, you know, you can help people, you can help people figure out some of this. And, and that comes from, as you know, as I do, from being in the business 30 years, over 30 yeah. years. And it's just, you know, um, sometimes we can save them having to trial and error it for the next 10 years by saying, we've done all the trial and error. Please let us, let us help you skip that 10 years of pain uh, that isn't going to get you much. You know, um, sometimes you can't, but sometimes you can, and people will, will let you, you know, bring your experience to bear and save them time, money. Um, and then just bringing good relationships to people. I think as well, uh, you know, going back to where we are, um, my pattern of in, in these different shops where I'm in and out in three years, and, and these days that's considered a long time in development. But when I look at my pattern, um, you know, one of the things I bring to clients is I don't want to be around forever. I would much rather help you see the opportunities that exist in your situation show you how to do things in the way that will get the best possible results, whether that's annual giving or major gifts. And then 
get you trained so you understand how to do it and then leave and get out of your way because quite frankly, you don't need to be paying a consultant for the next three to five years if what you need is two years of assistance and, and maybe a year and a half of correcting the way your program is running and then six months of training so that you can run it yourself. You don't need to be paying you know, a consulting firm for the next 10 years. I wanted to ask you about one piece of that. So the thing that seems to be consistent and what you're talking about is these building of these relationships, whether they're ones you've had for 30 years, or they're ones you develop where you are. It's just a part of who you are. And that's also part of how you work. Um, but you also just talked about how some things have changed. And one of those changes is three years is a long window these days. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it seems to be. Um, what else has changed and and in this field since you began that's really making a big mark on not only the advice you provide, but how you see people working in fundraising generally, how it's changed fundraising as a whole? Um, well, obviously the things we're hearing talked about um, more and more and more um, are things like diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and I think it's important that these things are talked about. And, and, you know, you've heard me talk about how it was an opportunity for me to work 80 hours a week and so on and so forth. And right. but admitting that that was a distraction, right, from a difficult time in my life when I was very much felt very much alone. Um, so I filled it with work and that worked out OK for me. Um, but but I think we know now that work-life balance is important. I think we know more than ever before that uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion are important. And these things are, these things are making an impact. Um, beginning my career as I did in annual giving, I'll tell you there's a lot. There's typically more women than men. Uh, typically more women than men in development, uh, in annual giving development, at least at higher, in higher education institutions. Mm -hmm. But there were always more men in the VP roles than there were women, you know. So clearly we had the same issues with respect to, um, you know, uh, equity, um, women who, who took time off to have families and things like that, you know, maybe struggled to get positions that they, that they shouldn't have struggled to get. Um, you know, people may have hired men because they assume that even if, like, you know, in my situation, when I was at, at, uh, in Ohio, you know, I don't think anyone at Kent state worried that as my, uh, ex-wife was having our two kids, that it was going to impact my ability to work. Right. But nobody was rushing out to give her, uh, they gave her adjunct positions. Nobody was offering her anything more than adjunct positions, you know, probably because she, she had young children, you know? So I think that's, that's an issue. Um, also, as I said, while I talk about the, the hours I worked as a great thing, there's a cost to that. There's a cost to me personally, there's a cost to my family, there's a cost to all of us. And I think that anyway, we're all learning about work-life balance, right? I mean, that we have to be healthy. You know, it's funny. Um, and I, I totally am blessed and spoiled, you know, but right now I was just looking at some stuff the, last night and I realized that I've got like, um, in my future, I've got like six vacations already planned. <laughs> you know, it's insane. I've never had this happen before. Where, where are you Listen, going? <laughs> oh, I've got a, I've got, I've got a cruise in July, a Greek cruise, Greek, Greece and Turkey in July. I've got a cruise in 2023. Um, where are we even going on that one? I don't even know, Jay. I can't, I, I can't remember. That one, that one will come to me. I've got, I've got three weekends in Mexico planned in Mexico. Now that's for, for us here in Houston, that's a less than two hour flight. So I've got three weekends planned in Mexico between now and next January, already on the calendar, book the plane tickets and all that. And if you had ever told me that I'd ever have two vacations planned at the same time, I'd say no. Um, but I, we, my wife and I highly am remarried. My wife and I highly value travel. Um, we also highly value getting away and being together and spending time together. And so we do that. Um, and we also, uh, um, cause we recognize like, what's it all about? You know, we've both struggled with, you know, we both face tragedy and things like that, both face difficulties. So that's important. But anyway, and I've also discovered in my life as a result of a whole variety of personal experiences, you know, um, you know, 
that we do live in a world with tremendous bias. We do live in a world with tremendous inequity. We do live with, um, and I've known that for a long time, but it comes into sharper relief when you realize, uh, when you just experience it more and more and more over time, you know? Um, I have a group situation. Uh, I have a group that I run in my home uh, two Thursdays a month. And um, I'm not sharing anything that, that, that she has not told me I, I can't share. But I know there's a woman there who lost her son. And there was, at best, a shoddy investigation of it because he was African-American. horrible yeah but if i'm honest i mean we've all known that forever so it's brought home when the person you're sitting with is right there and is somebody you would call a friend right and then you you know so these kinds of things that you know as i said you know uh my ex-wife you know never getting anything more than an adjunct position again might not have had anything to do with the fact that she was um it might not have had anything to do with the fact that she was in her childbearing years and had and had a little one at home, but it might have because she did have, you know, she did have uh, tremendous grades from uh, the University of Texas. She did have a law degree from BU. She did have a master's of communications and, you know, she did have everything that she would need to get more than an adjunct position, but didn't. You know, and, and oh, and also had passed the bar at that point, already passed the bar in three different states at that point. You know, so, um, you know, she had a she had real ability. So, you know, but all of that, you know, but it, again, um, yeah, so that's a challenge. You know, you've uh, you've been um, uh, working now with with the business all, out of Texas this whole time now. This is, uh, I guess, about 18 years. Is that right? That's right. Um, working with this huge range of clients all around the country, uh, sometimes beyond. And um, you've just described how the work-life balance, the, the choices that you've made for yourself now, now with a new marriage and a happy house, looks a little bit like a church, like I said earlier. <laughs> um, but uh, that, <laughs> that you, uh, you seem to be in a, in a different place. Um, what, what, how are the changes for you and how are they impacting both the work you do, but also how you're working with others? You just mentioned a group in your home, and I know that you do work with others uh, as they navigate tragedies in their lives. How, how, is that, how is that informing your life today? So I lost my son, Connor. Uh, he was a 19-year-old. A, a sophomore student at the University of Houston, and he jumped from a building on September 20, 2017. Um, now, huge impact, obviously. Uh, um, we've been, we still, uh, it still makes my voice shake. It still brings me to tears, plenty. Um, but at the same time, we have moved to a place where we choose to, you know, remember remember him, celebrate him. We include him. We talk about him when we're on vacation. My family is, is tremendous in that. We all continue to want to include Connor in our thoughts and so forth. So we do, and we share when we're together, we talk about him. Um, but I do run this group twice a month and I help other people going through the same difficulty and tragedy of that kind of loss. Um, but really recently, about a month ago, all of a sudden, it kind of struck me that I said, you know, um, how did this happen to Connor? Like, how did he get himself in such a way that, you know, that he thought that this was this was the only answer for him? And, and because he didn't actively show any signs of depression and things like that. Connor suffered from Asperger's, so he'd always been somebody who self-isolated, but we just thought that was his preference. Um, but for me, what ended up coming to uh, what I came to was an understanding that um, we don't include people with Asperger's in our society, much like we don't include people who are trans, much like we don't include people who are gay if we think they shouldn't be gay, much like. So all of a sudden, for me, the diversity, equity, inclusion argument became 
you know, and I take it back to my faith. It's like, yeah, we don't need to be judging. We just need to love one another. And we don't need to be, you know, I don't need to be judging you. And, and we need more acceptance. Ultimately, my son in part took his own life because he couldn't fit into a world that didn't let him have a place. And I think to myself, that's, that's tragic, right? That is tragic. And, you know, we could, Connor had all kinds of incredible talents. He could do things that no one else in our family could do. And yet at the same time, you know, this world didn't let him, he couldn't see a place for himself. And that's crazy. I mean, that's terrible. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, so for me, that's kind of where the diversity, equity, inclusion thing in part falls to. I, it, I'm looking at that in a very different way now. Yes. Equity for employment, equity for resources, all of those things, but just, we just need to have a world that allows people to find their place. You know, and I don't know, I don't know entirely how we do that. You know, um, I used to think years ago, uh, from the time I was a big brother, I thought eventually in my career, I'm going to do a bunch of volunteer work. I'm going to become a big brother. And maybe when I'm retired, I'll be a big to like five or six kids. Cause I thought that's a great organization and it helps people and I can do that. But now maybe my path at some point will be different. Maybe it'll be trying to figure out how to, how to encourage more people to, um, employ people who are different from themselves, just mm. encouraging people to just accept people who are different from themselves and not figure out that we all have to be God and judging, uh, judging others. This is, uh, something that, um, is, has occupied your life in a big way because of your son, both your sons and their importance to you. Faith, family, and philanthropy are things that have been key throughout your whole life. And on a happier note, you've also taken initiative to bring people to the United States for study. You've taken multiple mission trips abroad, none of which you've really talked much about, not just here, but elsewhere. But these things are important to you, but you're also, um, quiet about them. And I wonder if you reflect on that as you uh, think about the way to encourage others to find the uh, solace and companionship and uh, of others as they navigate their own, their own difficulties. Uh, you seem to have found some places where even in the toughest times, you can, you can do some good in the world. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I can. Um, well, yeah. And I have enjoyed, and just so you know, I've enjoyed all those experiences, you know, um, again, you know, service, you know, we say it, we say it when we talk about, we you know, if we're asked to give talks about it, we talk about, you know, Hey, I'm not, uh, um, will, you know, will when we talk about major gift fundraising, you'll raise more money. If you, if you, first of all, shed the notion that you're taking things away from people. And you're actually giving them an opportunity to do something bigger than themselves, right? I'm not taking your $50,000. I'm allowing you to be a part of this incredible opportunity. And so uh, I feel the same way about the mission trips I've been on, right? It was an opportunity. And, and, and as a young person, I would like to see far more young people in this country have an opportunity to go to a third world country. And, and be of service and to care for people and to see how much of the world lives. Um, and you actually don't have to go to a third world country. You can go to neighborhoods in most American cities. Um, but I would encourage, I mean, that, but for me, it was impactful. I, I was changed. I went on, you know, the first trip I went on, I think I was a high school senior and I was, I went to Haiti and it changed me. It, it, at, at a bare minimum, it made me very appreciative of everything we have at the time I was living in Canada, everything we have in Canada, everything we have in the United States and so forth. Um, I've been back several times since, you know, now I understand more that, yeah, sometimes what we have is a direct response, um, is a direct response to what they don't have. You know, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, 
I also worked at a grocery store as a kid growing up. I worked at A&P, the great Atlantic and Pacific company. And, uh, and, um, and I literally have I had this thought many, many times that, you know, when sugar went on sale, you'd get a five pound bag of sugar. I mean, it's significant, right? I mean, more sugar than you could put in your coffee in years. And, you know, this five pound bag of sugar and, and the AMP that would go on sale and sometimes it would go on sale for 50 cents, 50 cents for a five pound bag of sugar. Mm-hmm. And, and what I learned in Haiti was to make that five pound bag of sugar, you had to, hell, you had to, you had to cut down about a quarter of an acre of sugar cane and you had to process it and you had to, anyway, the whole process. And then, you know, and what this teacher, uh, this teacher at my high school, Stella Petroni had said, you know, she goes, and you know how you do that. She was a sweet little lady. You know, her sister actually was her sister. Stella's sister was a nun. And anyway, Stella uh, would say, you know, and you know how you do that. And you'd be like, and she's so, you know, and, and, and we'd be like, how Stella? She goes, you do it with slaves. And then we realized like, and then of course, those were the people we were visiting in Haiti, the, uh, in, the, in the Dominican Republic are these Haitian slaves, about 700,000 of them that live in the Dominican Republic. And they get paid a dollar a day so that we can have sugar for 50 cents for five pound bags. You know, and then you begin to realize like, wait a second, you know, sugar's in everything I eat in America. Yeah, it's bad for me. I'm gaining and I need to lose weight and everything else. It's bad for me, but it's in everything and it's being harvested by slaves. And that's pretty much the world over that sugar is harvested by slaves everywhere. Um, and then, you know, and then you go on and on through the different understandings in your life and you begin to see things. So, so when I can serve, I like to serve. Um, uh, I would like to probably do more of that. Um, I have sort of half threatened. I never did take Connor. He never went to Haiti, but I did help. Um, uh, first one, it was one gentleman go to school uh, after the hurricane, after the hurricane or the, sorry, the earthquake in Haiti that took down all the universities. I was helping a student go to school in Haiti. And then when all the universities were collapsed, I helped him go to school in Texas. And then it turned out to his two brothers after him uh, coming and I helped them less than I helped the first son go through college, but I helped them as well. But, you know, so yeah, I do like to help people. I would like to help people more. Um, um, I certainly see the benefit of that transformative experience that I had. I think that more people should have it. It's interesting. Ironically, there was a, there was a church that I attended. Uh, we don't attend now, but I attended for a while. Um, and, um, wealthy church and had done quite well and had a surplus of money one year at the end of the year. And so what they did was, and I thought it was great. I don't know how well it was adopted, but they came out and they said, we would like every single family in this church to go on one of our mission trips so much so that we will pay for it. And I think, you know, so that's, you know, that's probably my still my ties to church is probably because I see churches doing that. Um, so um, because I've, I've, you know, quite frankly, after losing my son, I've had my periods of struggle with God. You know, I've had my anger at God. You know why? But my anger at God wasn't like, you know, why, 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 why? I think I got away from that rather quickly. Um, but it was more of a, hey, God, why have you made things relatively easy for me? And you made things relatively hard for Connor, you know, um, I find working easy. I find, you know, interacting in this world as it's structured pretty easy. Um, Connor didn't find anything easy, you know? So, you know, but then I realized, you know, when I, I come around to that's not God and, you know, God gives us the opportunity. God gives all of us the opportunity to serve others. So anyway, I arrived at a different understanding, but, you know, um, but that's, that's where I think faith-based organizations have a real opportunity. I like the ones that are doing those kinds of things. And I support those kinds of things. And I think I'll continue to support those kinds of things in my life, the rest of my life. I hope. Um, when we go, when we travel, we, um, we try to be, um, kind travelers, you know, we kind, we try to be generous with the people we visit. Um, 
I've even talked about, haven't done it yet, but I've even talked about in future on family trips, kind of setting aside, if we go somewhere for a week, setting aside like one day to really be serving the people we're visiting. Um, but I haven't done it. I haven't done it. But that's sort of, uh, I know how to do it. I've seen it done enough so that I know how to do it. So, um, yeah. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at donorsearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.